You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Acts. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join him now. Lord, as we come, gather in Jesus' name, opening up the, the word that uh, was inspired by you, breathed out by you, as holy men of God uh, wrote as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, Lord, we just, uh, we know that your word is a sharp, double-edged sword. Lord, on one end, it, it cuts, Lord, and on the other end, it protects, Lord. Lord, we just pray that you would cut like a surgeon's scalpel in our heart and just remove all of the, the cancer and the, the spiritual just disease that is within us, Lord. Just purge it out. And Lord, also, we pray that your word was come, would come to our defense and offense today. We pray that we would glean just incredible truths from Paul and Silas and their missionary journey through Macedonia. Lord, that we would just be encouraged and exhorted to press on in the midst of suffering, in the midst of persecution. Lord, that we would get our eyes that are fixed on ourselves and the four walls of this church, that we would lift them up and see the lost around us. And we would have that same heart as Paul and Silas to get out and to further your kingdom. Just do a work of your spirit in our midst as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse one. Now, when they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, They came to Thessalonica, where where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Uh, So within this first verse, as they make their journey from uh, Philippi towards Thessalonica, it's kind of brushed over in this first verse, but they were traveling about 100 miles in this one journey between cities. The city of Thessalonica was in Macedonia. It was a prominent seaport there in Macedonia, a populous city and a free city that uh, Rome didn't have authority over. They weren't allowed to station Roman garrisons there. And something beautiful about uh, the gospel going to Thessalonica today, as we read in the story, is that a very important Roman road passed through this free city, the um, what was called the uh, Ignatian Way. And this this road stretched from Rome through the Middle East and was an incredible, uh, really a port in and of itself for the gospel to get throughout the then known world. And so as they come to this Macedonian town of Thessalonica, they went into a synagogue of the Jews, which is what uh, his custom was. Paul's custom was to go into those synagogues. Uh, these men that had a, a background of Yahweh, a background of Old Testament history. Really, the foundation was laid to bring in the understanding of Jesus as the Messiah. And so you would think that it would just be a ripe, cultivated ground to cast the seed of the gospel upon. And yet we see it that uh, throughout the, the history of Paul's missionary journeys, they would go and often meet rough opposition from hard-hearted Jewish men. And so, uh, but as they went into that synagogue of the Jews, then Paul, as as his custom was, went into them, and for those three Sabbaths, reasoned with them from the Scriptures. At least three weeks, Paul was the guest speaker there in Thessalonica's synagogue. And it says that he was explaining and demonstrating 
that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And so I love this, this section here as we see that Paul reasoned with them, number one, and that number two, his reasoning was from what? His reasoning was from the scriptures. And I love this word reason. It'll sound familiar to you in the Greek. It's dialogomai. Dialogomai. There was a dialogue as Paul uh, reasoned with these men. He discussed, you know, and and a bit of it was argument and, and a bit of it was exhortation in the original language you see. But it was really a discussion. It was reasoning. It was speaking with questions and answers and and trying to get these men and these women to think, to reason. And we see that reasoning was even one of Paul's practices. In the book of Acts, chapter 17, verse 17, in this chapter we're going to read that he reasoned again in the synagogue of the Jews. And then in chapter 18, verse 4, he reasoned in the synagogues again. And then chapter 18, verse 19, he goes into Ephesus and reasons in the synagogue. Chapter 19, verse 8, reasoning again. Acts chapter 19, reasoning in the school of Tyrannus. In Acts chapter 26, verse 25, Paul says this, I'm not mad, I'm not crazy, most noble Festus, but I speak the words of truth and of reason. I'm just speaking truth here. I'm speaking for things that are reasonable to a fair inquirer. And then in the last chapter of Acts, it says this in 28 verse 23, when they pointed Paul a day, many came to him at his lodging. He was a, a prisoner under house arrest. And it says, to these people he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning until evening. And some were persuaded by the things that were spoken, but some disbelieved. And so a practice of Paul was to reason and to explain and to persuade From the scriptures, chapter 28 tells us again, from the law of Moses and from the prophets, that Jesus is the Christ. The Christian faith is a reasonable faith. And then the fruits of that faith are reasonable fruits. 26 times in the New Testament, Paul will say, for this reason, I do this for Christ. Or for this reason, I bow my knee to the Lord and Savior. For this reason, for this reason, for this reason. And as we talk to non-believers, they just think that we're just a bunch of blind faith people. We're not blind faith people. Our faith is a very tangible faith. In fact, faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. And yet even within that... There is so much within science that points to a creator. There's so much within the scriptures that point to a Messiah and Jesus being the Messiah at that. His reasoning was scriptural. 
And as he's in Thessalonica here, you can just flip over to 1 Thessalonians and just keep your finger there because we'll kind of hip-hop back and forth. Just getting you ready for the Benjamin concert. We're going to hip-hop back and forth. Um, just to, to kind of look at this letter and see what kind of relationship Paul had uh, with this church uh, there in, in Thessalonica. You know, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 8, as we see that Paul was reasoning from the scriptures, later on he tells this church that he who rejects this, and at the time the context is uh, God's standards for sexual purity, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God who's given us his Holy Spirit. And so when you use the scriptures to reason, like Paul did there in Thessalonica, you can rest upon the authority of the word of God that is, has been tried and tested and remained true and faithful for, for thousands of years. And, and it can be what you rest upon. And when people disagree with you, you can say, hey, you're disagreeing with God who's given us his Holy Spirit. You're not arguing with me. This isn't an offense to me. Although I love my Jesus and I want you to know him too and love him too. But really, you're rejecting God. You're rejecting God. And so I encourage you all, when you go to reason with people, make sure your reasons are scriptural. That that would be the foundation of your, your, your uh, discussions and your dialogues because you can rest upon that. And so, uh, and so just kind of keep your finger or a piece of paper there in, in Thessalonians and go back to chapter 17 because we see in verse 3 that within his reasoning, he would explain, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. And he would say, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. Within reasoning from the scripture, there's explanation and there's demonstration. As the King James Version says that Paul was opening and alleging, opening and alleging that the Christ had to suffer and rise again. The word opening means thoroughly opening. They were, he was thoroughly opening. And then the word alleging means to present something by placing it alongside another. In other words, when Paul would open up about Jesus being the Messiah and that he had to die and rise again, he brought evidence and he laid it out. He laid it out alongside his, his arguments. Here's my arguments, here's my reasoning, and here's my evidence. I'm explaining it to you. I'm opening it all up to you. I'm alleging it to you, placing it out there. <clears throat> and I'm demonstrating that Jesus had to suffer, the Christ had to suffer, and had to die. As 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 says, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense for the hope that is within you. To everyone who asks you a reason. I just encourage you. To be students, to be those that look into the deep things of the Lord, that you would know why you believe what you believe, that you would have the scriptures as your foundation, and you would bring alongside of that other evidences that point to, to Jesus being the Christ. Always be ready to give a defense for the hope that, that is within you. 
How was he proving? How was he bringing forth evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead? And how was he bringing evidence at the end of verse 3 that Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ? How was he doing that? Well, I would say, number one, as he presented the scriptures, he laid out over 300 Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled within the first coming of Jesus Christ within his 33 years here on earth. Over 300 prophecies that, will, that were fulfilled concerning his first coming. Number one, I'm not going to go through all 300. I'm going to give you some of the main ones. Born of a virgin, Isaiah 7, 14. He was born of a virgin. He was a descendant of Abraham, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Just a few little references here. That Jesus would be of the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49, 10. Of the house of David, 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16. Born in Bethlehem, Micah 5, 2. Taken to Egypt, Hosea 11.1. 1. Herod's killing of the infants concerning his life, Jeremiah 31.15. Read that fulfilled in Matthew chapter 2. That he would be anointed by the Holy Spirit, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. We read about that in Matthew chapter 3. He was be heralded by the messenger of the Lord, John the Baptist. Read of that prophecy in Isaiah 40, verse 3. That he would perform miracles. He would preach the good news. He would minister in Galilee. He would cleanse the temple. He would first present himself as king, 173,880 days from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem, Daniel chapter 9, verse 25. That's a big one. He would enter Jerusalem as a king on a donkey. You know, concerning that entering into Jerusalem and presenting himself as king, Sir Robert Anthony, or excuse me, Robert Anderson was a detective that worked for Scotland Yard, and he developed much of his time to understanding the prophecy there in Daniel chapter 9 that would show Jesus is the Messiah. Incredible evidence to see a man who was good enough in his detective skills to work for London's uh, FBI, and, and that his evidence would demand the verdict that Jesus is the Messiah that was written of in Daniel chapter Nine, who rode in on a donkey 173,880 days after the command given from Artaxerxes to rebuild Jerusalem. There's not a whole lot of argument against those, that incredible prophecy there. The prophecy that he would be rejected by the Jews, Psalm 118, 22. That he would die a humiliating death, Psalm 22, the whole chapter. That he would be rejected. Betrayed, uh, betrayed by a friend, sold for 30 pieces of silver, silenced before his accusers, that he would be mocked, beaten, spit upon, that his hands and his feet would be pierced, Psalm twenty two sixteen. that he would be crucified next to thieves and alongside thieves, Isaiah 53, 12, that he would be praying for his persecutors, that he would have his side pierced, Zechariah twelve ten. That he would be given gall and vinegar to drink, Psalm 69, 21. He would have no broken bones. He'd be buried in a rich man's tomb. He would have his garments gambled for as lots were cast, Psalm twenty-two, eighteen. That he would rise from the dead. That's a big one. That he would ascend into heaven and that he would sit down at the right hand of God. Those are just a few out of 300 that were fulfilled specifically within the life of Jesus Christ. 
I want to read uh, from one website I looked on. It's called uh, Messianic Prophecy, Compelling Predictions. Where they say Messianic Prophecy is so powerful because it's statistical odds that one man would fulfill every single one of these prophecies. If we just analyze seven of the more specific prophecies in the Old Testament that were later fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, we're stunned by the statistical impossibility of such a historical reality. In an illustration, we have inserted some conservative odds alongside seven established prophecies. Okay, Uh, let me give you those seven. The odds that Jesus would be a descendant of David are, uh, excuse me, 10 to the fourth power or one in 10,000. Okay, that's not really that big. You know, lots of guys were descendants of David. Uh, The odds that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem are one in 10, or excuse me, 10 to the fifth power, or one in 100,000. That Jesus would be a miracle worker, uh, one into the fifth, or, or, or excuse me, 10 to the fifth, or one in 100,000. Uh, the odds that Jesus would present himself as king by riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, one in a uh, million. And uh, that Jesus would be betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver, that is also one in a million. That Jesus would be crucified, one in a million. And that Jesus would first present himself as king, 173,880 days from the decree of Artaxerxes to rebuild Jerusalem is also one in a million. But the total probability of just those seven prophecies fulfilled in one man is one, or excuse me, uh, 10 in 30 to, to the 36th power, or one in 100 billion, 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 billion. Okay, so it's good to know the Old Testament prophecies concerning Jesus being the Messiah. And, and you know, that's 300, but to just know these seven, I mean, just take some time and, and work out these seven in the Old Testament and where they're fulfilled in the New Testament in the person of Jesus Christ. And to be able to say, you know what, that Jesus would fulfill just those seven is, you know, one in 10 to the billion, 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 you know, five billion words, Okay. I mean, that's just incredible. And no doubt Paul was, was laying aside, as that word is, as he demonstrated that Jesus was the Messiah. It's a reasonable conclusion as you examine the Old Testament prophecies that Jesus would be the Christ, the Savior of the world. As I was in Jerusalem, my first trip over there at 19 years old, uh, I remember going to the Temple Institute where uh, we were shown all of the artifacts or seen all of the um, items that will go into the temple that will be rebuilt in the end times. And the Jews have, have rebuilt everything except the Ark of the Covenant and the temple itself. They've got red heifers that are bred already. They've got menorahs that are built. I've seen them with my own eyes. I've seen the priestly garments that they're going to wear uh, when the Antichrist comes and says, hey, rebuild the temple. I've seen those things. And as there was a pregnant woman there giving us the tour, she was from Brooklyn, uh, I remember my pastor, Rob, just saying, hey, you know, as we're looking over this vast dire, uh, model of what the Temple Mount's going to look like, and my pastor just said, hey, have you ever heard of the, the idea that Jesus is the Messiah and that he's fulfilled the prophet? He didn't even get the sentence finished when she lashed out at him. I mean, I don't know if you know, you don't want to mess with a pregnant Jewish woman from Brooklyn, okay? <laughs> 
You know, she, oh, that is so offensive. You have no clue how offensive that is when someone says that to us. And I remember my pastor saying, you got to understand it's offensive to us when you won't even dialogue with us about this. You, you won't even talk about it. I'm just, have you ever heard this? And, uh, you know, it's just an, an unreasonable heart. As Thomas Arnold, not Roseanne's ex-husband, but Thomas Arnold was the former professor of history at Rugby in Oxford. He's known as being one of the best histor- uh, historians uh, in world's history. But he put this, I know of no one fact in the history of mankind which is proved by better, fuller evidence of every sort to the understanding of a fair inquirer than the great sign that God's given us that Christ died and rose again from the dead. There's no greater evidence in anything in the history of man than that Jesus is risen from the dead. And Paul was able to bring that evidence and lay it alongside and say the Christ had to suffer, he had to die. And who is that Christ? None other than Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph and Mary. And so why was it necessary that Jesus had to suffer, you know, for Jesus to suffer and for him to rise again. Why was that necessary? First of all, so that he could fulfill the prophecies concerning the Messiah in Psalm 116, that the Lord would not allow the Messiah's soul to stay in Sheol, but that it would rise from the dead. His body would not see corruption, as the psalmist puts it. So to fulfill prophecy, not only that Jesus would rise, but that he would also be a suffering servant. Isaiah 53, Isaiah 50, Psalm 22. You know, it's good for you guys to know just these scriptures, you know, that Jesus would be a servant. He would come in lowly. He would have no form or comeliness that we should desire him when we see him. You know, he would have his beard torn out, Isaiah 50 tells us. You know, all of these things point to the Messiah, and so it was necessary that the, that the Messiah suffer to fulfill those prophecies. Also, to save people from their sins. Because righteousness does not come by the law. Temporary covering of sin was given when a, the blood of a bull or a goat was shed, but that just covered sin. It didn't completely annihilate sin. And we're told that without the shedding of blood, there's not forgiveness of sin. And so one had to come that lived a perfect life that could shed his blood, that sins could be atoned for, that the ransom price could be paid as our sin held us hostage. Someone's blood had to be shed. Someone with perfect, spotless blood. And the only one that ever had that kind of blood was the Messiah. The one who was tempted in all points, just as we are, yet without sin. So why did the Christ have to suffer and die and rise again? Because we needed redemption. We needed atonement for our sin. In Galatians chapter 2 verse 21, Paul says, I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness comes through just keeping the law, then Jesus died in vain. Why did Jesus have to suffer and rise again? Because righteousness does not come from being a good person. Nobody's a good person anyways. <laughs> but it comes through the, the atonement, the blood that was shed on the cross. If we could do it on our own, 
then Jesus didn't have to die on the cross. He died in vain. He also had to rise from the dead or, and die and rise from the dead to conquer death. You read about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The whole chapter is given over to proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus and that last enemy, death, being destroyed because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was necessary that Christ rise from the dead, that death could be conquered, and he would be just the first fruits of those that would rise from the dead, and anyone that believes in him would also have resurrection life. Not only when we die and rise from the dead, but today we can walk in resurrection power and victory. As Romans chapter 8, 11 tells us, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells within you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. 1 Corinthians 15, 17 tells us, if Christ is not risen, then your faith is futile. It's worthless. And you are still in your sins, Paul says. It says also there in verse 18 of chapter 15, then also those who've fallen asleep in Christ have perished. They're dead. They're rotting in the ground. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead, he says in verse 20, and he's become the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. He's risen from the dead. He's conquered death. He gives us hope in more than just this life, but in an eternal life. And that is why it's necessary that he had to die so that he could rise from the dead. This Jesus whom I preach to you, he is that Christ. And if you'll just be reasonable, I mean, come on. If you'll just be reasonable and dialogue and listen I know you'll come to the conclusion that he is Christ, the Messiah, and he's also Kyrios. He's Lord. He's Lord. Isaiah 1.18 says this, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though there is crimson, they shall be as wool. Let's reason. And as you reason and learn about Christ and the atonement that's for your sins, even though your sins make you have a black garment on or a dark garment, I wore the closest thing to scarlet I had in my closet to maybe kind of give you an idea. You know, not really. I didn't have anything white either. So um, though you might have a dark garment on, Jesus will make you as white as snow. He'll purify you from the sins of the flesh. And so as Paul reasons and dialogues and explains and demonstrates it says there in verse four some of them were persuaded some of them and a great multitude of devout greeks and not a few of the leading women joined paul and silas so some of them were persuaded they believed they were convinced by the argument they were persuaded. In 2 Corinthians 5.20, Paul says, you know what? I'm an ambassador for Christ. Really, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Paul was pleading and begging that they would be reconciled to God. A few of the Jewish men did. 
A great multitude of the Gentile men did. And not a few leading prominent women. That's just kind of like a lot. A lot of leading prominent. That's like a double negative or something. I don't know. But it ends up being a positive. You know, A lot of uh, prominent women there. Probably even Jewish women. And so here we have the beginnings of the church in Thessalonica. And as you understand church history, you know, maybe you got your Bible and you're like, Philippians, Galatians, Corinthians, who are these people, you know? Well, you can look back at the book of Acts and you can plug those letters in with these groups and, and it just gives you an understanding. Who are the Thessalonians? What's first and second Thessalonians? Hey, it's these people. This is the first, this is the church there that these letters were written to. As you look there, as you go back to where you had your finger, first Thessalonians 1, 5, It says, our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and the Holy Spirit and in much assurance. As you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake and you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. So we get to see that this dialogue and this discussion and this presentation of Jesus, it wasn't in word only, but there was power behind it. There was much assurance behind it. Their character was perceived to be good by the men and women that were listening. As you jump over to chapter 2, verse 13, it says, We also thank God continually, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. And so we just see that, that the powerful word of God came in and persuaded. The, the implanted word uh, was placed in their heart, implanted in their hearts, and it began to germinate. It began to grow. And these uh, few Jews, lots of Greeks, lots of prominent women, this church is established. We see in 1 Thessalonians 1, 2, and 3 that it was a healthy church. It was an encouraging church. They had faith and labor of love and patience of hope in the Lord Jesus. It was a church with a good reputation. Chapter 1, verses 6 through 10 tell us. We also see in 1 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 that the church in Macedonia was a giving church. They would give according to their ability and beyond their ability, they were freely willing. But remember, as we just read in chapter one of first Thessalonians, it was through much opposition that the Thessalonians received the word of God. And that's where we come to right now. Verse five, but the Jews who were not persuaded became envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathered a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. So these multitudes getting saved provoked the Jews to jealousy, which is actually what we're to do as Christians. Romans tells us that, uh, and we read of it in 9, 10, and 11 of Romans, that our relationship with Christ should provoke the Jews to jealousy, but, but this turned into a, an envious, bitter type jealousy here. King James Version translates the Greek phrase for these evil men here as lewd fellows of the baser sort. Okay, That's the opposition that Paul and Silas have, have come up against. 
And so we, we read that they uh, attacked the house of Jason, probably a, a recent convert, and sought to bring Paul and Silas out to the people. And when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, these who've turned the world upside down have come here too. Now, as you read this, you know that this wasn't a pleasant arrest here. They were drug. They were drug out into the marketplace. And the cry about these men was that they've turned the world upside down. And they've come here too. As you look in verse 7, Jason's harbored them and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar saying there's another king, Jesus. So Paul and Silas, their message was of a kingdom and that kingdom had a king and that king's name was Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus Christ. No doubt within that message they preached that if someone wants to enter into that kingdom, they must be born again. They must have a second birth. They must be regenerated. They must have that heart of stone taken out and have a new soft heart put in them by the Spirit of God that can know and hear God and understand His Word. They preached a kingdom. They preached a king. And they preached a state of heart that one must have to enter into that kingdom. That state of heart does not come from outside sources but comes from the Spirit of God regenerating man. Is Christ your king today? Is Christ your king? That's a message Paul and Silas brought. Is he your king? Do you bow the knee to him? Are you obedient to him? Do you fear him? Is your life his? Is he presently reigning in your life? Maybe at one point he was your king, but you've walked aside from that. You've walked away from that. Is he your king today, presently? The message that Jesus is king creates great ripples in a city. Those ripples become large tidal waves that completely turn a ship upside down. (laughs) Turns the world upside down. I remember when I was a high school uh, pastor and I taught through the book of Acts about seven years ago or so, and I remember going through this, and I remember writing in my notes, they turned the world upside down. Oh, really? The world was turned right side up. I thought I was so clever. Funny thing is, is every guy I've read or listened to says the same thing, so I guess I'm not that clever. But the world was really turned right side up through the preaching of Jesus as the king. And you know what? This is our vision. This is our vision to turn the world upside down for Jesus, to turn this town upside down for Jesus. In chapter 16, verse 20 of Acts, Paul and Silas were accused of exceedingly troubling the city of Philippi. Exceedingly troubling. What does that look like? I mean, in a bad sense, it'd be like a whole bunch of gangs around here putting tags on, you know, your garage door and every wall they could find and drive-by shootings, pop, 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 you know, and robbing banks and all that. And this is, you know, this town is exceedingly troubled. We got to move out of here. In the spiritual realm for Christ, what does that look like? Drive-by shootings. and No, nothing like that. Uh, Man, in a sense, we're going around, we're using the word of God, the sword of the spirit, the offensive tool that he's given us, and we're demonstrating Christ, and, and everybody knows that there is something going on in this town. It is shaking things up. It is changing people. There's something happening here. 
The Holy Spirit is, is the, the person who is doing this work of flip-flopping the community, changing the town. Exceedingly troubled. About a couple months ago, right before Thanksgiving, we had one of those really bad freezes here in town. And a couple of guys from the church and myself, we went around to the different trailer parks in town and just knocked on doors and just said, hey, if you know anyone that has pipes frozen or anything like that, then uh, just let, let us know and we'll come fix them. Or if your car won't start or if you need firewood, give us a call, you know. So we go to one mobile home park and we go into the manager's office. And as I just say, hey, I'm Rory. I'm from Calvary Chapel. I just immediately get a, <laughs> wait, hold on. Let me, let me tell you what I'm here for. And she says, oh, my husband does all our repair work. And I said, hey, let me just give you our, our card and, you know, uh, just call us if you need anything. Found out that, uh, she found out that uh, these same guys I was with had repaired one of the, completely remodeled one of the homes in that park. And immediately a door was opened for us to share with this mobile home park. I mean, we went from, no, you can't even come on the, the land here, to, hey, what's February 5th look like for you guys? Can you come in and share what you do with our mobile home park? And we're like, sure, you know. <laughs> so for a couple of months, we were just like, okay, Lord, you know, we're, we're going to the, the park meeting. Uh, what do we share? Praying through it all. Uh, f- finally, February 5th comes around, and I just kind of bring some church information, have Frank, uh, our seniors ministry guy there, and Greg with Helping Hands, and, and we just, just very sensitively, knowing this is a secular meeting, uh, just, just, very sen- just say, hey, we just want you guys to know we love you. We don't even know you, but we love you, and we're willing to pour out our lives and our resources and our energy to fix your house, to help you garden, to read to you if you're lonely. Whatever you want, we will lay down our lives for you. And it's just a reflection of how Jesus loved me and served me and laid down his life for me. And, you know, so here's Frank. Frank, you know, well, we have a seniors ministry, and that's about it. Okay, Greg, yeah, if you guys need any help, I'm the helping hands guy, give me a call. You know, that was about it. Thought it went well, Okay. Week later, uh, the manager of this mobile home park comes into my office and is livid, is livid with me uh, that uh, we had put him in such a, a bad situation by preaching religion. And I'm just like, whoa, I thought I was like really holding back, you know? And, uh, you know, uh, there was a demand for a letter of apology to the mobile home park and just all of this. And I'm just like, hey, you know, I'm sorry if it was in a bad, but, you know, we're a church, you know? And, and what do you expect when you invite a church to, to come share? And, you know, and, well, I think we just were inviting people. That's it, you know? And uh, needless to say, uh, the words that he used were, when he first saw me, was Rory, you're getting me in a lot of trouble. Getting me in a lot of trouble. I was just like, oh, <laughs> heard those words before. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Man, I'm really sorry that we exceedingly trouble you by telling, that we lo- telling you we love you and we'll give all, of all of our resources and our time and our energy and anything you need. You call us, we'll be there. Sorry. <laughs> you know, sorry. And then, so I wrote a letter of apology. It wasn't very apologetic. It was apologetic. Um, it was, uh, it was just closed with, we're still here if, if you want us, you know. And so may we live in such a way that as we bring the, ma- I mean, I could tell the, the second the word Jesus came out of my mouth, you crossed a line. But may we cross that line. May we turn this world upside down. 
You know, in a cultural sense, the message of Christ as king turns the world upside down. You read the Beatitudes, man, and it's just like throwing a wrench in the gears of the Jewish machine. As Jesus said, hey, blessed are you if you're poor in spirit. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. When every Jew thought it was about me being rich in spirit and self-righteous that would make me enter the kingdom of heaven. No, 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 Jesus says, you need to realize you've got nothing. You are in poverty spiritually. Then you'll have the kingdom. If you mourn, you'll be comforted. It's okay to weep when the world says, don't weep, don't cry, buck it up, be a man, don't let people see your tears. Jesus says, mourn and weep and cry, but not like those that don't have hope. Blessed are the meek, you'll inherit the earth. The world says, hey, be a strong man, step on whoever you've got to to get to the top. Jesus says, hey, bridled strength, strength under control, strength that is suppressed, you'll inherit the earth. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you'll be filled. If you're merciful to people, you'll be shown mercy. Don't go get revenge. Blessed are you if you're persecuted. You know, just on a cultural level, so much of what Jesus says just turns the world upside down. You know, on the Sermon on the Mount, you know, uh, Jesus says, hey, you've heard it was said long ago, don't murder. But I say to you, if you're angry with your brother, you've already murdered him in your heart. If you say to your brother, you fool, you're in danger of hellfire. Matthew 5, 27, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, you know, you've heard it said of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you lust after a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery within your heart. This is all... That wrench has been thrown in and the gears are grinding and cracking and it's going to flip the machine upside down. And that's just in Jesus' first public sermon on the mountain. Guys, we aren't to be the same as the world. We're to be different from the world. In the world, but not of the world. And as people see our good works and our obedience to Christ, they'll glorify the Father who's in heaven Verse 8, and they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. There's that troubling. (laughs) And so when they'd taken security from Jason and the rest, they let him go. Who knows why money appeased the situation here as men get so fired up about, they're going to turn the world upside down and, and, you know, they're going to overthrow Caesar, but hey, a little bit of cash and you'll be good to go, (laughs) you know. And you see the heart of the matter, just the greed of these men. There's such corruption in their heart. Unwilling to be reasonable. Unwilling to just hear. And just, you see, just, man, it goes so deep. It's just really, it's an issue of corruption, of greed, of pride, of covetousness, which is idolatry. And is that in us today? We have the similar thing in us as the Thessalonian people did. Let's pray. Have the worship team come on up. Lord Jesus, as we come to understand that you are both Lord and Christ. Lord, we have been persuaded by your Holy Spirit. We've been persuaded to receive and to believe 
Lord, you've won the argument. And we want to bow the knee. Lord, wherever in this place there is a heart that is hard, there is a neck that is stiff, there are ears that are shut and eyes that are closed, we pray that today all of those things would be softened and opened and that the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ would be crystal clear. Lord, as we see our fallen condition in this chapter, that some men, Lord, Lord, they they won't listen. They won't hear. They'll refuse to surrender. They refuse to be vulnerable before your presence, Lord. Lord, such were some of us. But Lord, you who are rich in mercy, continue to press in. You continue to preach and you continue to minister even when you know that the outcome could be rejection, could be persecution of your servants, ultimately costing your son his life. Lord, though our condition was fallen, Lord, you have a plan of redemption. And we thank you that that must For the Christ to suffer and die. That must. Brought about redemption. Brought about eternal victory. Eternal life. And right now where you're at today. I pray for you that you'll be persuaded. And that you'll bow the knee in humility before Jesus. That your tongue will confess today that he is Lord. That you'll allow his sacrifice on the cross to cover your sins and to take away your sins. To never be remembered again. And right now where you're at, you don't need to raise your hand or stand up or come forward or do 10 Hail Marys or anything like that, right now where you're at. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust in him. He cares for you. He loves you. He created you. He died for you. He forgives you. He grants you inheritance as you're his son now. And as Ephesians chapter 1 tells us, he will breathe his Holy Spirit into you, the third person of the Godhead, and he will seal you as a guarantee of your salvation. Trust him today that that is taking place right now in your heart. Say, Lord Jesus, I believe. Lord Jesus, today you've persuaded me. Forgive me of my sins. Give me power to live for you. Write my name in the Lamb's book of life. Lord Jesus, I love you because you first loved me. Lord, for those of us that are saved, Lord, we know we're saved. We believe we're saved. We trust in you that we're saved. Lord, we pray that we would have that same heart that was in Paul, 
and Silas and Jason and Luke. Lord, that we would have that heart that would further the kingdom of God. Even though it means starting riots, even though it means being beaten. But Lord, that we would not shy away from demonstrating and explaining that Jesus is the Christ. Help us with that, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754, or check us out further on our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.